Good morning. Grateful you are here. We've reached September. We've been talking about this for weeks, the month of marriage. This doesn't mean if you're not married, then you can do a pass and skip church for a month. That's not what that means. It means that you will hear stuff that you can apply in different ways to different things. It's not because, this is, you know, as we do a sermon on, on marriage a little bit today, it's not because Joe Scott finally brought his girlfriend home this weekend. It's not that. Uh, got to meet her. She's from Georgia. She's a peach. Yeah. Anyway, so just waiting. It's, it's not that, and it's, 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 it's not because we're trying to give any subtle hints to anybody, and I'm not going to use illustrations from people here in this uh, assembly. You know, I can usually use that, but I'm not going to do that when it comes to a marriage thing except my own. I've got plenty of illustrations if I need them for that. But this, this month is a, is a big deal for us because marriage is a big deal, and it's a challenging thing, and it's a lifelong thing. And we're very well aware that there's all sorts of things that happen in marriages that deserve attention. But we don't often, we're not going to do like counseling from the pulpit. That's not the way to help marriages. We're just doing encouragement from the pulpit. The counseling will happen in other places maybe, or at least we'll have that, be able to refer you that way if those things are needed. I don't like doing this any more than you necessarily like hearing marriage sermons. Uh, because the more I work on these things, I'm, I'm going home and I'm looking at all the ways I fall short. And it's frustrating because I'm very conscious of it in those weeks where I'm putting a sermon together. So this morning, as I get up and I'm the first one up, I prepare coffee and I get the last of, we have a canned creamer of, um, uh, is it condensed milk? It's condensed, I think. Anyway, anyway, that's what we use as a creamer. So, so anyway, I, I don't know. I was, I was wanting to say evaporated milk, but if it's evaporated, it won't go in your coffee. So and it's, it's whatever that condensed stuff. So I, I'm, I get the last bit of it, put the coffee in. and You know what that means? When I got the last of it, the can's empty, throw it away. There's no can open now. So when Melissa gets up, she has to go get a can and open it. And I, 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 tr- I did this a few, uh, just a few months ago. I decided when I'm the last one, and I get the last bit, I'm going to open the next one so she doesn't have to do that. But this morning, I didn't even think about it. And then I reviewed the lesson for this morning, and I thought about the fact that I didn't open up that can. And I'm like, you just passed up an opportunity to be a really good husband. That's what doing, preaching sermons on marriage does to you. This is why we shouldn't do this more than maybe once a year for one week, but, but we're going to do that even more. But this morning, it's called the marriage hermeneutic, a real big fancy word I'm using on there to show off my intelligence. Right? Hermeneutic, that just means a way of interpreting Scripture. There you see one diagram somebody uses. You take a text and you apply it to settings. How do you get there? We've talked about this for years. We use like command, example, necessary inference. That's kind of our hermeneutic. But this morning what I want to talk about is how you need to, when you interpret Scripture, when you apply it to you, whatever passage you're using, you need to bring your marriage into it. It needs to be brought to bear on a marriage relationship. This explains a few things. For instance, it explains why a passage of Scripture suddenly means something different to you than the last time you read it. Have you ever been reading through a passage and you thought, I never saw that before? Has that ever happened to me? I never realized that was... Well, you've read this a hundred times, but for some reason it never dawned on. Well, you're in a new season of life, and now the application 
really hits you between the eyes. And so every time you read, that's why, that's why none of us are done with Scripture. Well, I've read the Bible, and I don't need to read it anymore, right? Because I've read the whole thing. Well, read it again because it's going to look different. It's going to sound different because you're in a different season of life. That's, that's why we need to apply the marriage. This is also why we have Bible classes separated the way we do. Sometimes we go a little extreme on this, okay? But the idea is when you have a high school student studying Scripture, it needs to sound different than if you studied that same passage of Scripture with 50-year-old people who are empty nesters. Yes, it's the same passage. Yes, some of the meanings are exactly the same way. But how you apply it as a teacher is totally different. That's why we have high school and then you have college. Because college needs to hear it different than, than young professionals or, or people who are octogenarians or whatever. So we have Bible classes that way for that reason. And a third thing is this. It's why we need to meditate on Scripture. When you go to a passage, it's not just, I'm going to read this and say I read it. I want to be able to ask, pass the Bible quiz questions on this. Or I want to be able to know that, that I can answer every question conceivable historically from this. No, it's, it's so I can look at this and say, if I, take this, if I take this seriously in my own private mind, what will it challenge me to? If I bring my marriage into this... What bearing will this passage have on it? If I bring my coworkers and my setting from my job into this, what will this mean for me? This is work you do. God writes a passage, God provides it, but he expects you to think about how this comes to bear on my life setting. And it's going to be different than somebody else. That's why you need to intentionally bring your marriage into every interpretive conversation that you have from scripture this morning we begin this but it's going to go all month long this afternoon about 3 15 3 20 Suzanne Casey Dr. Suzanne Casey from Searcy excellent therapist excellent counselor she's going to come and this is not a bible class she's going to be right here you have a big white erase white dry erase marker board uh, up here and she's going to conduct this class with married people if you are married if you want to be married, if you have been married and you're open to being married again, come to that class. If you go to Soto, come to that class. If you don't go to Soto, come to that class. If you want to come and correct her, come to that class. If you want to come and say all the things you did wrong and help us all, come to that class. Whatever, it's going to start at 3.30. I put on there 3.20. Get here at 3.20 so she can start at 3.30, okay? She's also going to be part of the marriage retreat on the 23rd through the 25th. Then next Sunday, Devin Swindle's going to be with us. He's going to talk about marriage, especially from a, uh, he's going to, I said, really address college because that night he's going to address college about something else. He's a professor at college. He loves that stuff. He's geared for that. And then the next week, Michael Deese is going to do it. I don't know what he's going to say, but I put a picture of his whole wife because I'll bet you April writes that sermon, not him. So... Rightly so. He's going to do that that night. The youth group is going to conduct services. We are going to have a whole, a whole month of this stuff. But even if you're not married, this stuff applies to you because of this hermeneutic idea. Take this stuff and apply it to any relationship you have. It's going to be relevant to everybody. It's a month of marriage at Valley View. But for today... First lesson, what are we going to talk about? You almost think you know, don't you? It's going to be either from Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? That's where we're going to start. No, that's not where we're going to start. Why? Because nobody even hears those passages anymore. 
You think you know already. You already know what they mean. We're not going to hear. Second thing is this. Those passages make you think, and for the, and for, for the church over the years, here's what we address when it comes to marriage. You need to stay married. Your marriage is forever. You need to not divorce. That's what we say, because you've got to stay married. God is concerned about you staying married, but that's not the only concern he has about your marriage. And yes, God does say, I want male spiritual leadership and the roles of marriage, like Ephesians 5, and we talk about that till we're blue in the face. Yes, God, can I tell you a lot, though? God is most concerned about the climate and atmosphere of your marriage, about how you treat each other, how you view each other, how you can learn from each other, and how you can experience life together in peace and harmony. That is God's greatest concern. And we miss it because we're so busy arguing these other things. And so we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4 that was just read a moment ago. And here's what it says. I therefore, keep in mind in first three chapters of Ephesians, he said everything God has done for you. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's done everything. He sent his son to die for you, to make you one with every other believer. Jew and Gentile were brought together and you are now one. You have unity. Chapter 3, he says, I want to pray that my spirit in your inner being can help you to know how much I love you and I've equipped you to be the fullness of God and to be able to be one with one another and show the world what God is like. That's what he says in the first three chapters. Therefore, he says, given all I've done for you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called to. I want you to respond to what I've done with as much quality effort as I've given you. That's what God says. So with all humility, I want you to know these attributes that the Spirit's trying to give you. Humility, gentleness, and patience. So that you can bear with one another in love. And maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now what is he talking about? Unity of the Spirit. When you are immersed... In the waters of baptism, God forgives your sin and he puts you with a community of people, but he also, he also puts his personal spirit in you to make you one with every other person who's got the spirit of God. If you have the spirit of God, you are a brother and a sister, a oneness partner with every other person who has the spirit of God. Is that true? It is. God issues it to you. It doesn't matter what you think about them. It doesn't matter what your past history with them is. If you share the Spirit of God, He puts you into unity. And He says, I've made the unity. Just don't mess it up. That's what He asks. End of chapter 4, He picks up that Spirit again. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's, he's trying to make you one. He's trying to keep you one. Don't grieve Him. Don't break His heart, right? Don't let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, let all that stay away from you. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. So these are the two commands that the Spirit needs. He needs you to bear with each other, and He needs you to forgive each other, and He gives you all the attributes He can possibly give to make that possible. Well, okay, so we think of that as a communal between us. Every person in this building who shares this common spirit needs to bear with each other to keep the unity. We need to forgive one another to keep the unity. Is, 
Is there any other way to read this? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, he also says God makes the husband and the wife one through the Spirit. That's another unity God creates, and these same two things apply to marriage. And then think of Malachi. I want you to look at this verse. We don't think about this in marriage, but premarital counseling, we look at this closely with everybody. God says to the Israelites, I'm not hearing your worship anymore. I'm not hearing your prayers. I don't accept your worship, and you can feel my rejection. And they're going, why, God? Why, God, are you rejecting our worship? And God says, because you've forsaken the wife of your youth. You're just dismissing your marriage relationships, acting like it's no big deal when you made a covenant in my presence. And he says, did he, I, God, really, did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. Do you know what I believe happens? Chase and Jaden are going to discover this real shortly. When you stand before a community of people, and that's kind of optional, but when you stand before God and you make a covenant to another person in marriage, God issues His Spirit in a very specific, important way. He gives you His Holy Spirit to make you spiritually one. You are now one spiritual unit. So when you read Ephesians chapter 4, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, could you not also apply all that stuff he mentions to your marriage? Bear with each other. Forgive one another. In order to do that, you've got to practice humility, gentleness, and patience. And you know what that means? Just read between the lines for a little bit. Here's what it means. It means we are different from each other. We're all different from each other. And when you get married, you're different from that person. It seems easy to us to overlook our differences when we've got attraction and pursuit and winning the heart of that person in dating. And two people, you know, opposites attract. But then when you get married, the opposites go opposite. All of a sudden, you start looking at the opposites going, how in the world did we ever get together in the first place? So think about this like an ordering pizza. Used to be you couldn't order a pizza half and half. It was all one thing or another, baby. You just choose it, right? And so two people would get together, and, and, and she's wanting uh, supreme. She wants it all, and he's very particular. He just wants cheese and sausage. And so what going to do they've got to figure out how to accommodate this right and in marriage it's like this we are different people we have differences second thing that this tells you is you married a sinner now that's not hard for you to get you married a sinner but here's the hard part so did your spouse right Oh, I didn't hear any amens. Okay. I, I kind of got a couple of nods on the first one, but the second one, everybody went still. You married a sinner. Look at your spouse right now if you're married and say to yourself, I married a sinner. All right. But then think of your own self because she or he married a sinner as well. You are a sinner too. You got two people who are fallen. Living in a fallen world, things aren't going to turn out as well. And you are going to be offended by each other. It is going to happen. You are going to sin against each other. I know what boys to men sang, and I'm going to try it. I'll never break your heart. I'll never make you cry. No one's made Melissa cry more than I have. 
And boys to men, add them up, they've been married a dozen times. Song don't mean jack. It's what she wants to hear, and maybe that's what he thinks at the moment, but the truth is the closer we get to one another, the more likely that we will sin against each other. The more time you spend, I can... I can keep you from sinning against me by, uh, I enjoy you here this hour at church, but I'm going to get in my car and go home and spend the majority of my life with you, without you in my presence. You're not likely to sin against me, but I'm going to go in those doors and close the door, and I'm going to spend a lot of time with Melissa, and it's very likely I will sin against her because she married a sinner. It's my nature, and I did too. And if I go into this thinking it's going to be perfect, or it has to be perfect, or if it's not perfect, we married the wrong person, that's a lie. That's a lie. You both are sinners married to each other, and we're fallen, and we'll make mistakes, and we will break each other's hearts, and we will make each other cry. And the only people who may have made Melissa cry more than me is her kids. What do we do about this? What do we do about this? Well, first we bear with each other. We, this is when we're different. It's not a moral thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's not a sin. It's just we're different. We're wired different. We have different interests. What do we do? Well, we live separate lives, right? I didn't use this in the early service, but I will now because they're not here. Time's sharp, right? Every time I go see him, do you know what he's doing? His house is here, and his man cave is over here. The man lives in a man cave. It's easy to keep the unity of the peace, unity of the spirit, when you don't live in the same I mean, they live in the same place, but he's in his man cave all the time. That's one way you can do this. But bearing with means that, you know what, I understand we're going to be some differences, and we're going to compromise. And by the way, when we compromise... I'm not going to go around with a martyr look on my face, like I'm going to compromise and be super spiritual and put up with you. And your, your difference from me is immaturity. Mine is a more mature palate. And so I'm, I'm a little farther along on the road to sanctification, and you're a little bit further over here, so I'm just going to put up with you, kind of like that very stuffy, arrogant thing, right? That's what a lot of couples do. And when you have haughty eyes, God hates that, and so no longer are you bearing with each other. When Melissa and I got married, we had different ways of things. Her parents ate out nearly all the time, it seemed like. My parents never did. My, my mom had the, it was like you had the supper on the table when dad gets home at 5.30 or whatever, and, and you ate that stuff, and we ate out once a year at McDonald's in Farmington. It was weird, right? We just didn't do that. They ate out all the time, and I was sitting there going, that is, a, an in, that is, a, that is an immature way to live. It could be because they both worked outside the home. That could be it. And she folded towels different than I do. She had a double fold. I had a trifold. And my trifold is obviously more superior than a bifold. It just obviously is. And I'll let her do that. But really, I know this is a superior thing. And it was ridiculous. Who cares how you fold a towel? It just doesn't make any difference. But these things, you can let them. You can let them make you gripey. I've done it. What do you do about when you sin against each other? What happens when one of you actually does offend the other and it's legitimate? It is a, it is a, it is a sin. Well, we forgive. And the only way to do that, he says, is with humility. And where does that humility come from? It only comes if you look in the mirror and say, not only did my wife marry a sinner, 
but I am one too. If you really think you've got it all together and you, you're morally superior to your spouse, you will have a hard time with this and you won't issue any grace to them because you don't think you needed any from God yourself and you're an absolute fool to believe it. But if you don't accept that interpretation, what Scripture says, because here's the truth, you sin more than you realize, you're worse than you really think, and God loves you more than you can ever imagine, and He has issued you a lot of grace, and the most important thing you can do with it is accept it and then extend it. And if you can learn to do that, you can forgive people who slight you because you know you've done the same thing. When God's daughter, Melissa, does something that offends me, what should I do about it? Her father, God, my father-in-law, God, has forgiven me of so much that I find it hard to believe there's anything that his daughter can do to me that's so grievous that I should not also extend that same grace to her. I think the greatest thing God does for our marriages, and we don't think about this, and I've never heard a communion talk on this, one of the greatest things God does for our marriages is have husbands and wives gather around the table every Sunday morning. We gather around a table where we acknowledge we are why he had to die. My sin is what killed him. His grace is what this table is about. And when I leave the presence today, I'm reminded of my sin and his incredible grace. How can I not extend it to others? Here's a picture. Let me just draw a picture. And I, you want to know where this came from? I just thought of this in my head because... I looked at all the ways I've done this over the years. This is what it looks like when you won't bear with and you won't forgive. She does something to wrong me. I feel it. I remember it. I don't issue grace. I don't issue forgiveness. In fact, instead, I put it in my memory bank and I review it often. And I nurture it. And I picture in my mind making an argument to God as judge and to a jury of any of my peers. And I give this very moving speech about how wronged I've been and how just I feel in my anger. And the, and the jury comes back and says, you're right. Every time I give the speech, the jury tells me I'm right to feel this way. And I'm, I have every right to expect justice. And I keep a record of wrongs. Not only is it there for when I explode eventually, but it gives the devil this foothold of bitterness and anger in my heart. And whether I know it or not, and whether I'm conscious of it, seriously, I'm not even conscious of all the ways I let it affect me. It impacts my feeling and my attitude and my affection for my spouse. My eyes go dark and all I see is fault. All I see is weakness and mistakes and my heart starts to harden and I interpret everything that happens in the most negative light. And now when there's time to bear with something that isn't a moral slight, little differences, it it, I take it so personal that she intended to make me angry and build on this 
grief I've got. And now when there's a time to be light and casual and have small talk and conversations of laughter, lightheartedness with friends, I am incapable. Little inconveniences I blow out of proportion and eventually the explosion takes place, but not until several months after the offense when the fuse has been going so long that several other things have been wasted and damaged along the trajectory of this fury. How much better would forgiveness have been for me and for her? Anybody been there? Am I the only one? That's Ephesians 4 and why it's a marriage text. I'm going to add one more layer to this, just one. It's from Matthew chapter 22. It's going to be seemingly unrelated, so just hang with me for a minute. In the resurrection, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage, but all like the angels of heaven. You do know, right, that marriage is an entirely earthy thing. It's only for this life. Once we are in heaven for very long, and to talk about for very long in heaven is a weird thing because it's eternal. Once we are in heaven for very long, you're going to realize that marriage was a very little part of your life. Very little part. And yet, it's a big part of this one. I would take you back to 1 Corinthians 13. Do you remember this? There's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these of love. And I think it's this reason. Love lasts forever. Love is now and love is throughout eternity. Faith, faith will disappear. It will become sight and you'll no longer need faith. Faith is just for here. Hope, hope is just for here on earth. Hope is, is going to be realized in full and you won't need hope anymore in heaven because it's all fully realized. And so those two things, faith and hope, are just for this life. There's something about this life where we need those things. God gives them to us as just for our earthly sojourn. That's all it is. And marriage is one of those things. Marriage is just for this earthly sojourn. That's all it is. So what is it for then? Right after he says this, he says what the two greatest commands are. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills everything God said in the Old Testament, including what he says about marriage. Marriage is to help you love God and to help you love your fellow man as a particular one fellow person, the one you're married to. Marriage is this tool God gives us to help us stay faithful in this life and get to the next. And once we get there, it dissipates and we get something better takes its place. It's the most... It's the most powerful lab for learning how to, how to love God. So here's the deal. Your marriage is God's blessing to you to shape you up and make you more like Jesus. Your marriage may be the most vital tool for God shaving off the rough edges and making you look more like Jesus. No one is more helpful in helping you be like Jesus than your spouse if you let them. I grew up in Churches of Christ. I don't want Melissa preaching. I don't think that's right. But can I tell you something? She teaches me more than anyone else how to become like Jesus if I will listen. 
I'm not going to take my, 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 my hermeneutic about who preaches up here and take that home and say, I must not learn from her. She's got to learn only from me. There's nobody on earth who's taught me more about my rough edges than my wife, and I don't like it, and there are moments when I repel against it. I just don't like her being the instructor. It's a most humbling thing. So a couple weeks ago, Wednesday night, we're going to Wynn, Arkansas. First time I've ever been to Wynn. Right next to each other is a Sears and a Radio Shack. I thought they were gone. We're back in the 80s. I'm driving a DeLorean. Driving in there, it's a beautiful town. I really, those beautiful towns, it's a beautiful group of people meeting that church. On the way back, she won't even, well, she'll probably remember this. On the way back, Listen to the Cardinal game on the radio like all Christian people should. Listen to that. Need to call my mom. My, my mom called her. I, I called her. She called. I don't know. My mom called, and so I turned down the radio, and I, I talked to her just for a few minutes, and then turned the radio back up because the Cardinals are playing, I don't know, Cubs or something. And, um, and then Abby calls Melissa, and what they like to do is they like to where they can see each other. And it makes this weird screeching sound. It's an odd thing. But anyway, as we were driving along, Abby calls her, makes that screeching sound, and I say, can you turn that down? And I could tell this was a bad thing to say. I knew I had transgressed something. It took me a minute to understand what I had done, but I'm serious. That's a blind spot for me. I'll just tell you this. I was incredibly selfish. I wouldn't turn the radio down so she could have her conversation with her daughter. We drove home mostly in silence the rest of the way, including we got home, and I thought about it for two or three days. There's your preacher at his best, church. That's selfishness. Now, some people are going to say it ain't no big deal. Y'all, that's a big deal. Selfishness like that needs to be driven out of the Christian life. I'm not saying I would have gone to hell if I don't get rid of that. I'm saying to you, I want to be more like Jesus, and I want to get rid of that selfishness. That doesn't belong in the Christian life. And I didn't even see it! But Melissa pointed that out, and it was something I didn't receive very well. It's been several days, and I still haven't talked to her about it. Shame on me! She's there to teach me. Now, I was, we were taking a walk the other night. And I said, okay, this is sermon prep. When you're talking about marriage, sermon prep is every hour of the day, including the walks you have with your wife. And I said to her, what's one thing that you would change about me if you could that would make marriage better? That's a terrible question to answer unless you're willing to listen. All right? So I venture where no man dare to tread, right? And I said, there'll be no payment for this. There'll be no, you, you won't pay for this. You just be honest. She says, you remember, now remember, when you forgive, you don't forget. So she brings up something from seven or eight years ago. She says, you remember we're going to Eagles concert for our anniversary, and we go to St. Louis, we're going to fly to Kansas City, and yeah, so I remember that, and the snow stopped the entire, canceled the, the flight, and now we had to figure out how to drive there to get there in time. You were so out of sorts for a long time because the plan was changed. I wish that when plans like that fall through, you could be quicker at getting back to just dealing with it. 
What a great answer. And she's right about that. That's a, when I planned something and didn't go right, boy, it takes me some while to get my brain around it because I wanted everything perfect. And you, and you know what? I, I'm saying to you, life has fallen. We're a sinner. We've got to bear with each other. We've got to bear with life. And you just can't be that way. And she's right. She is shaving off those rough edges if I will let her. Now, I've decided I need to get back a little bit and, and tell one of hers. So here we go. Here goes lunch. So one time, this is, not, this is not a sin necessarily, but one time she was getting ready to go to bed, and I was hiding under her covers, just going to see what happens, right? So when she peels back, I'm ha, you know, like this. I do that. She screams out of her mind, and I'm telling you that adrenaline theory works. She takes her hand, and she goes, wham! Her handprint was right here on my chest, and it hurt like Hades, right? Right here. If CSI had been there, they could have gotten her fingerprint off my chest. <laughs> this was years ago, and it just went away two days ago. It was, it was something. And, and when she, she backed up, and she started crying. And, and I was like, I almost started crying because I hurt. She, she was crying, but she wasn't crying at first because she was scared. But then she kept apologizing because she had just hit me. And I was saying, it's all right. I mean, I didn't know that you would respond that way. It's not your fault. The jury will come back with a verdict good for you. I promise you, right? I don't know. That, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's even a bear with or forgive something. That's just something I, I made a mistake on. And, and we just, we, we go through life with this stuff. These kinds of things happen in your marriage. And you can, you can choose you can choose to bear with and forgive and overlook, or you can choose to have justice for everything. But if you do, then you serve a God who could do the same thing. And if he chose to have justice with you for everything you did, where would you stand? So he says, not just forgive one another, he says, forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. Anchor it to yourself. That's all I want to say. One more thing, Romans 1. Last thing. This chapter is often used to attack homosexuality. It's all in there. I get it. It talks about once you give up the worship of God. Here's what starts. Although they know, knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And what comes after that is God gives them over. It goes into all sorts of immoral behavior, all sorts of ungodly sexual behavior, but all sorts of disrespect and hatred and discord with your fellow man. I want you to know that the reason why humanity has fallen morally is because they first fell theologically. They chose not to be right with their creator. They looked to the creation for their meaning and their behavior and their ethics, and that couldn't withhold it, sustain it, and so it collapsed. If you want to get right in your marriage, go to all the counseling you want. I get it. I'm all for counseling and therapy. But can I tell you something? The most important thing is to get your lives right with God. If you'll know God, if you'll honor Him as God and give thanks to Him, you will respect your fellow man. 
You will bear with people because you bear with yourself. You will forgive others because you know that you have been forgiven. It's about getting the things right with your Creator. And I'm saying to you, you want to get your marriage right? Get your household right. Get to honoring God, worshiping Him, serving Him, loving Him, devoting yourself, studying Him. Get to know Him. Get things right with Him. And this other stuff will be fixable. That's not an expository sermon, which I like. This is one that's been everywhere, and I don't like doing that. But y'all, this is how you read Scripture. When you find a passage, you, take your, you bring your marriage to it, and you say, what can I do in my marriage that honors what's said in this passage? Get things right with God and let His entire Word speak to your marriage. Marriage is not going to be part of heaven. But how you handle your marriage will have a big say in whether you get there. And more important than that, for us Christians, your marriage is going to be a big part in shaping you to become more like Christ and living a kind of life that attracts the world. Nothing is more important to you than that as God's people. And this morning, if there's a need to get right with God, to worship Him, serve Him, get Him right in order, put Him first in your life, make your confession that Jesus is Lord so you can be right with God, this morning it's available to you. We urge you, make your life right with God and then make it right with others as a corollary of that. And this morning is a great time to do that as we stand and as we sing.